Well, do turn with me now in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 42. As we continue our series through this book, we come this morning to Isaiah chapter 42, verses 10, 11, and uh, 12. But in order to get our context, I'm going to read from the beginning of the chapter. So Isaiah chapter 42, and we'll pick up at verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, His praise from the end of the earth, you who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare His praise in the coastlands. Let us pray once again and ask for the Lord's help. Almighty God, we do ask now for the leading and guiding of your Holy Spirit as we come to study your holy and errant and infallible Word. We pray that He would help us to properly read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest, and all to the glory of God. Amen. Amen. Well, as we noted a couple of weeks ago when we were last in the book of Isaiah, at the beginning of chapter 42, Isaiah relieves the tension that has built up throughout the book as he has emphatically driven into the minds of his readers the tremendous grace of God for sinners. All the way through the book, but especially at the beginning of chapter 40, Isaiah has, to use Luther's uh, imagery, he has beaten into the heads of his readers that the grace of God is ready and accessible for anyone and everyone who would turn from their sin and turn to God in faith. Now, to the exiles, this, of course, was a message that was hard to grasp. Here they were, sitting now in Babylon, dealing with the consequences of their sin, and there was no question, there was no ambiguity about why they were sitting as a conquered people in a land far away from the one that God had promised to Abraham. For years, hundreds of years, God had sent up their sin and returned to the Lord, then He would send them out of that promised land. 
Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 13, we read that the Lord says, Because they have forsaken my law that I set before them, and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it, but have stubbornly followed their own hearts and have gone after the Baals as their father taught them, as their fathers taught them. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed this people with bitter food and give them poisonous water to drink. I will scatter them among the nations whom neither they nor their fathers have known, and I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them. God had warned them time and again of the great consequences of their sin. And as we have noted, one of the great principles of interpretation is that with every warning of God's judgment, there is an implicit invitation to faith and repentance. But the Judeans had resisted these warnings. They had resisted the invitations to return to God, and instead they had stubbornly kept to their sin. They had convinced themselves, really, that God was bluffing, that they would get away with their little game of feigning devotion to God, while in reality treasuring their little pet sins of lust and greed and power. They thought that they could hold to a facade of religion, and it would be enough. But of course, God is not mocked. And he was true to his word. And in 586 BC, the Judeans were indeed taken captive as Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon swept down from the north, invading Judah, destroying the cities, desecrating the temple, and removing the people from their homeland to that place where they or their fathers had not known. To them now sitting, languishing in Babylon, how this gospel just must have seemed impossible. Yes, God is gracious, but not to them, right? Not after what they have done, not, not now. They've, surely they've, they've gone too far, they've done too much, and there was no hope left for them. And maybe you know that same feeling. Maybe there have been seasons in life, maybe now is a season in your life when you are wondering if the grace of God is for you. There's no doubt in your mind that the gospel is true. There's no doubt in your mind that God is merciful, but you begin to wonder, really, is He merciful to me? You look at your life, and, and you realize that, that you have become what the Puritans called an, an evangelical hypocrite. You call yourself a Christian. You come to church. You read your Bible, but but you know the secret sins that hide in your heart. You know how you, like the Judeans, have kept your pet sins. And perhaps while no one else will ever know, you know, and you know that God knows, and you struggle to believe that the gospel is for you. Maybe, of course, you've never claimed to be a Christian. Maybe this is your first time in church, or maybe at best you come occasionally, a, a, a CEO Christian, Christmas and Easter only. You come every so often because, well, you feel like it's the thing to do. It's, it's how you were raised, but, but you know your sins, and your conscience convicts you, and you know that if you were to 
die and go to the pearly gates and St. Peter was to stand and ask you why he should let you into heaven, really, you have no good answer to give him. Like the Judeans, you've used people for your own ends. Your life has been one in which you have used people for your pleasure. You have used people to indulge your thirst for power. You've you've used people to gratify your pride. Or you've lived a life in which you have just eaten and drunk and been merry because you've convinced yourself it's just all meaningless. But of course, you know it's not meaningless. But what can you say now? How can you come back to God now after so cynically rebelling against Him and His law? But what Isaiah has been beating into the heads and the hearts of his readers, what Isaiah has been forcefully trying to get us to see is the utter graciousness of God to any and all, regardless of who they are or what they have done. Do you remember the definition of mercy that we have sometimes used? What is is God's mercy? It is God's steady and persistent refusal to be rid of His disobedient children. God's steady and persistent refusal to be rid of His disobedient children. That's what Isaiah wants us to see. This steady and persistent grace of God that welcomes and rejoices over His children whenever they see their sin and come back to Him in faith and repentance. But of course, the tension has been all the way through, as wonderful as this is, how can it be? How can God do this? How can such free and plentiful grace not run directly counter to the justice and the righteousness of God? And it was, of course, here at the beginning of chapter 2 that Isaiah, or better, God through Isaiah, began to give us the answer by introducing us to this new figure called the servant of the Lord. While there's still a lot that we need to learn about Him, we are told here that all of these gospel promises that God has been forcefully driving into our hard heads are focused in, even located in, this servant of the Lord. He will come, verse 6, as a covenant for the people. It will be in Him that the promises of God will find all of their fulfillment. It will be in Him that the people of God would have all the guilt of their sin washed away and replaced by a new righteousness, a foreign righteousness, a righteousness given to them so that they could return to the Lord and experience not only His forgiveness, but even His lavish blessing. It'll be through Him, through this servant, that the glorious kingdom of the redeemed promised to Abraham would be established, a kingdom not just restricted to the blood descendants of Abraham living in a little piece of fertile ground between the Mediterranean and the Arabian desert, but through Him, rather, this covenant would be fulfilled in a mind-blowing way, and He would inaugurate a kingdom of people from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue dwelling in a renewed heavens and earth. The servant would be the one in whom the promises given to David 
of a son who would rule his people and guard them from their enemies and establish them forevermore. He would be the one in whom these promises were embodied. As we noted last week, we have the privilege of seeing what Isaiah's original readers could not see, that this servant of the Lord in whom the covenants of God find their fulfillment as he comes as a covenant for his people, that servant is Jesus. Do you remember Matthew's testimony, Matthew chapter 12? Matthew shows us the the healing of the man with the withered hand. And then, lest we miss the significance, Matthew does this all the way through his gospel. He jumps into the narrative, presses pause, and and turns to his readers and says, "Dear, Dear reader, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah here in chapter 42. And he quotes it, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. I you remember Jesus' own words at the institution of the Lord's Supper. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This servant, in whom all of the covenant promises of God are so fulfilled and centralized and embodied to the point where he could be said that he is the covenant, that servant is is Jesus. Think about how comforting that had to be to these Jews sitting in exile. The knowledge that there was coming, just as God had promised to Adam and then to Abraham and then to David, there there was still coming for them despite all of their sin, despite of all of their wretchedness, there was still coming for them one who would fulfill all of God's promises on their behalf and who would bring them back to God. It must have been tremendous. Talk about an oil, a a balm for the wounds of the Lord's people. How they must have heard these words and and heard that this was no conditional promise of God. This was not God coming to them and saying, well, if they they showed that they really meant it, if they showed that they were really sorry, then they could come back on a conditional basis, and maybe after a while, after some probation, then they could be called the people of God again. No, this was God's promise of of grace so lavish, of a determination not to be rid of his disobedient children, that God says that he is going to do everything that needs to be done in order to bring them back from their sin. And he is going to send a faithful servant who will fulfill all of the promises of God for them, and in whom they will be blessed with all the blessings of heaven. But you understand it was by faith in the servant that these exiles were saved. But you understand 
that, that the Old Testament saints are saved in the same way that we are, by, by putting their faith in Jesus and by trusting in His vicarious saving work. They and we, heirs to the same glorious new creation kingdom because we trust in the same glorious Redeemer King. Christian, understand, it is the same Savior. It is the same gospel by which we are saved. But understand that, that while you do not have a better Jesus than they, it is the same Jesus. You do not have a better Jesus than the Old Testament saints, but you do have Jesus better. They saw Him in shadows and promises. Now, it was enough, yes, for them to trust in Him. It was enough for them to abide in Him and even to rest in Him. It was enough for the, the hope of the gospel to break through the darkness of their sin and for their heads to be lifted as they were assured of God's perfect, free forgiveness of sins, even while they languished in Babylon. But you have the gospels, and there you see Jesus, not just in shadows and promises, but you see Him come in the flesh. You see the servant of the Lord born of the Virgin Mary. You hear His words. You see His obedience. You watch His persistent determination to go to the cross on your behalf to inaugurate this new covenant reality. You watch as He puts aside every besetting temptation and trial and with a steely determination presses on to Calvary, knowing of that blood will be there, that His blood will be spilt. And by the spilling of that blood, all of these promises would be secured. You watch as He rises from His grave on the Lord's day, on that first day of the week, showing that His declaration on the cross that it is finished is true, and that all that needs to be done to secure the promises of God for the people of God have been accomplished. And so, sinner, post-incarnation, post-crucifixion, post-resurrection sinner, you have all the more reason then to trust in the servant of the Lord, to trust in Jesus, to rest upon Him and to rejoice that despite your sinfulness, despite your wretchedness, despite how worm-like, to use the imagery of chapter 41, despite how Birmian your sin has made you, you are by this servant, by Jesus, called a child of God and an heir to the blessings of heaven. But all of that to say, really by way of a very lengthy introduction, that our response to this gospel, our response to the Savior, our response to the servant of the Lord is to be, verse 10, to sing. Now, you remember Psalm 137, one of the most mournful of the Psalms. It's a song of the exiles in Babylon, a poem of the exiles in Babylon. And they say, by the waters of Babylon,
On the willows there we hung our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? It was the despair of the exiles. All they could see was their sin and their sorrow. All they could feel was the conviction of how their sin had created this massive chasm between them and God, and how could they ever get over it? And so there was to be no singing, not anymore. And so they just hung up their instruments and sat in silence. And maybe you know something of that deep conviction. You know your sin, and it grabs your gut, and you can barely lift your head. You come to the Lord in prayer, but, but you know your sin, and you struggle to utter a word. You know how you've sinned against God and against His laws, how you've minimized and excused your sin, but, but now you feel its weight, you feel its misery. Maybe it's because your chickens have come home to roost. And like the exiles, you are facing the consequences of your actions. But maybe it's just the inner world of your heart and soul, and you feel almost crushed by your guilt. How can you, how can you sing? Well, like this, Isaiah says. Like this, God says, you can sing because of the servant of the Lord. You can sing by seeing and savoring and rejoicing and delighting in Jesus Christ, the perfect Savior, even for a wretched, worm-like creature like you. In fact, verse 10 says, not only can we sing when we see the glories of Jesus Christ, the servant of the Lord. Verse 10 says to you, you must sing because it is the only adequate response to the riches of heaven poured out to you in Christ. Now, we are not a singing people in North America. Now, there are cultures in the world where singing is just ingrained into life. The Gaelic cultures of the west coast of Scotland and Ireland and, and Wales, they are inherently singing cultures. And you're a west coast minister that every time he took his dog for a walk in the woods, he would loudly sing out the Psalms in Gaelic, just singing to his Lord. Like maybe you've seen it in movies, but there are stories of the coal miners in, in Wales. They come out their front doors in the morning to walk to the colliery, the, the band of men ever-growing. What do they do? They're singing hymns to God. If you go to a Welsh rugby game, you will likely hear hymns sung in the stands. There are cultures where there are community choirs, people who go out on a, on a weekday evening, but instead of going to play cards or play golf or or pickleball, they go to sing because they love to sing. They love to be together. But, but we don't really have that. In our, in our culture, we listen to other people sing, and we don't sing. 
Maybe in your car, maybe in the shower, not in public and, and not with other people. But verse 10 says to you, North American Christian, you have no excuse. It comes to us not with a suggestion, it comes to us with a command, sing to the Lord a new song. It is a command to sing a song that is fueled by ever new experiences of God's grace. To sing a song to God that is driven on by His mercies that are new every morning. It is the command to sing a song, as John Calvin described it, that is excellent and beautiful and, and elegant. A song that is worthy of our great Redeemer's praise. A song that matches the release of our hearts from the mournful dirge of the conviction of our sin to the light and joyful wonder at the grace of God shown to us. In verse 10, the Lord commands us to sing. And in our song, celebrate all that we have received in and through this glorious servant of the Lord. And notice who it is that is to sing. Right? It's not a choir of particularly good singers. But it is all of God's people in all of the world. Right? Look at how all-encompassing this is. Verses 10 and 12. We have the call to the coastlands to join in this chorus. But you understand that that is just another way of referring to the very ends of the earth, an all-inclusive call to all of the people of the world, whoever, wherever, who have received the benefits of the gospel to come and join in this song. Verse 11, the deserts and the cities, right, used there as, as a, a merism, Two contrasting parts used to refer to the whole. Right? You have the desert, the least hospitable place for human habitation, and you have the cities, the most hospitable place for human habitation. And, and in this merism, these two contrasting parts used to say the desert, the cities, and, and everything in between. If you live in the wilderness, if you live in a township, if you live in a village, if you live uh, in, a, in, a, in a small city, if you live in a, in a large city, it doesn't matter where you live. You're included in this call to come and sing. But then in verse 11, we see two places singled out, Kedar and Selah. Now, we might just be tempted to see them as referring to two sample places in the Middle East, but it's more than that. Right? These two cities are synonymous in Scripture with being bitter enemies of Israel. Right, we read of Kedar in Psalm 120. Woe to me, the psalmist says, woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling amongst those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. And in chapter 21, Isaiah had predicted the destined downfall of Kedar along with Babylon. Selah was a fortress city of Moab, and you remember the Moabites, Deuteronomy 23, were to be excluded from Israel because they did not allow Israel to pass through their land on the way to Canaan, and because they hired Balaam, the false prophet, to curse Israel. But here, even Kedar and Selah are invited to come in and join the praise of the servant of the Lord. Do you understand the imagery? It is, it is a call without exception. 
It means that there are no get-out clauses to verse 10. No matter where you have come from, this is saying no matter what you have done, the invitation, as we see in verses 1 through 9, is to come to the servant and cast yourself upon him, looking to him for mercy and grace. And then the only adequate response, regardless of who you are or where you have come from, is to sing this great Redeemer's praise. And that means that you are to sing. It means that you are to sing even if you are a bad singer, because it's not about you. It's about Jesus. And so you are called to lift your squeaky, croaky voice to the Lord. Right? You might have a poor instrument, the vocal equivalent of a stringless guitar or a keyless piano. But the Lord says, use that instrument with all of your might to sing your great Redeemer's praise. It means that you are to sing even if you are a man. And it is the great tragedy of the 20th century that we have convinced ourselves that singing is an unmanly thing to do. But Christian men, you are called to sing. Christian men, you are called to let your sons see and hear you sing to the Lord, showing them that this is what godly men do. Maybe the men of the world don't sing, but redeemed men do. Christian men do. Men who have benefited from the work of this great servant of the Lord do because it's what the church does. In Revelation 14, John is given a vision of the church triumphant. Saints from all the ages gathered in heaven, and what are they doing? They're singing. John says, I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the Lord. It's the church triumphant. These glorified saints behold the fullness of their salvation, released from the burdens of a fallen world, released from the remaining indwelling sin. What do they do? They sing. And in obedience to verse 10, they sing a new song. They sing so loudly, John says, that it sounds like thunder and it sounds like the roar of waters. You understand that is not amplifiers. That is not microphones or speakers. It is simply the massed voices of the people of God singing to God. One of my greatest joys every year at General Assembly is when we sing. There is nothing like a room of 2,000 men lifting their voices to God, singing hymns and psalms. It sounds like thunder. It sounds like the roar of many voices, and it is joyous. It is a glimpse of heaven. Now, we are a small church, and we are not good singers. 
but we have a good Savior. And so let us be resolved to fix our eyes on Him every time we gather together and reminding ourselves of the wonders of our redemption. Brethren, let us sing out, declaring His praises, proclaiming the wonders and the glories of His work so that this place might even resonate with the praises of Jesus. Let us pray. Almighty God, forgive us. Forgive us for when we have kept our mouths shut, for when we have not sung in response to the great saving work of Jesus Christ, that perfect servant of the Lord. Loosen our tongues, Lord, and fix our eyes on Jesus that when we gather together, we would sing from the very depths of our souls, joining our voices with that church triumphant and singing the praises of God. Father, drive us on by Your Spirit. Shake us from our self-consciousness. May we simply be enamored by Jesus. Amen.